Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, I'm Jack Murphy. This is episode 178 of the Team House. We are here tonight with Milt Bearden. Milt served as CIA Station Chief of uh, Germany, Sudan, Nigeria. He was the Soviet Division Chief at uh, CIA headquarters, amongst many other positions he held during his time there. In his long career, he is also the author of The Main Enemy, um, which, I mean, not, not to suck up, but probably my favorite espionage memoir. Um, just a really terrific book. I hope that people will go and check out. Um, but today, actually, we're here to talk about a story that Milt did not include in his book, which is about a uh, really a humanitarian mission that took place in Sudan. And, um, you know, we'll start, we'll get right into it, Milt. I mean, can you tell us about, let's start off with what the situation was in Sudan at this time. What year was it? What was going on? This was, I went to Sudan directly from Nigeria in 1983. So I was there from 83 to 85. And it was at this moment next door in Ethiopia that, that a, a, a brutal dictator, uh, Mengistu Haile Mariam, uh, was in charge. And uh, he was brutalizing pretty much everybody in the country, uh, with very few exceptions. And this led... Uh, to the uh, a large, a growing movement of a uh, a lost tribe of Israel, the Falasha Jews of of Ethiopia, to begin to make their way out of Ethiopia into uh, Sudan, and uh, they became a huge humanitarian problem. And the only people that could step up to it. Uh, was the United States and uh, and the way things worked in Sudan is that CIA probably had as good amount of leverage with uh, the government as almost anybody. And that's from President Nimeri and his first Vice President Omar Al Tayeb uh, and uh, and and the security service that we supported. So we were faced with a situation of. Uh, what to do. But the background to it 
was that Mossad had established with the knowledge of uh, a handful of Sudanese, the president, the vice president, and a couple of others, a, a non-official cover station uh, in Sudan, and they had this Red Sea diving school. Uh, there's been a movie made out of mm-hmm. it, about it, and, uh, uh, and they were using that as a cover to exfiltrate handfuls of these Ethiopian Jews uh, by sea back over to Israel. Uh, we then came uh, together with them, and uh, I said, let's try to do something, if you'd like, to, to get this thing moving at, uh, at a faster pace. And I was able to work with the president of Sudan uh, to allow flights in, quite literally every other night, uh, to fill up a Boeing 707 with these people. And they were very, very quietly brought into Khartoum Airport, put on the airplane, and off it went. <clears throat> so this was going on for many months and and you figure a couple of hundred a night going out and that's that's begins to be a lot of them but it became compromised by some media coverage of it in the at the european end and uh, it was uh, brought to a, a halt and so then you had a situation where uh hundreds upon hundreds of these falasha jews were out in the sudanese desert uh, and uh, they were in quite a difficult situation. Somebody had to do something about it. At about that time, H.W. Uh, Bush uh, <clears throat> was vice president, and he uh, came out, and I'd known him when he was director, and, and I'd also met him at a couple of stations when he visited as vice president. So he came out, and uh, he said, there's a little pressure in Washington. What are we going to do about these people out there in the desert? So I wrote him out some notes on a three by five card. And I said, see the president. Uh, <clears throat> see uh, Joffrey Lee Mary, the president of Sudan. And use this approach with him. And uh, he'll probably agree to anything you want to do. He went and had his meeting with the president and came back. And he said it went just like that, tick, tick, tick. So now I want you to come back uh, to Washington uh, and set this thing up. I'll give you whatever resources you need. So I uh, took the vice president of Sudan uh, with me and we flew back on a C-141 to Washington uh, with one of those modules in it and uh, set up with both uh, the, the vice president and uh, the key people in, in Washington uh, that I needed. And we pulled together a team that was, let's call it uh, the unit, uh, a handful of those guys, and they flew back with us to Sudan. And then uh, we pulled together our assets. We went out in the desert and rounded up several hundred of these Falasha Jews that were out there in, in, a, in a great pickle and uh, uh, found an area that had a, a hard surface, uh, an old, old, unused strip uh, that C-130s could work on. 
And I had taken a, 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 a C-130 pilot out there. We checked it all out and he said, we can do it. So then uh, I had my team out taking these people and, and literally throwing chem lights on the path towards this, <laughs> towards this, uh, this strip. And you got to imagine, it's, it's almost biblical. These, these little people who maybe never even been on a bus are very obligingly following our people across the desert to this strip and following chem lights. And they all sit there uh, uh, on the side of what this strip was uh, and uh, overnight patiently waiting uh, for whatever is to come for them. Uh, they know that, that, that several before them or hundreds and hundreds before them had gone off and uh, to, to uh, Israel. And uh, so at, at first light, in comes the first C-130, hits, hits the ground, blowing red desert dust all over the place, comes to a halt, the ramp comes off, out comes uh, a, another team from the Air Force and Delta, and uh, with these knobby-wheeled motorbikes, and, and off they go, set up some more navigational uh, gear for the remaining C-130s that are still on their way. And then we start, we tied together about 25 uh, of these uh, falashas with yellow clothesline on their wrists. And then a couple of Air Force guys would take a clothesline and then walk these people up through this blowing red dust They'd never even been on a bus, and they get up the, the ramp onto this uh, onto this machine. God knows what, but they 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 didn't make a peep. In they go, ramp up, and off it goes, taking off. And God knows where. Then uh, another C one thirty, another C one thirty, until uh, we had <clears throat> quite literally moved uh, almost a thousand of these people. Uh, out by these C-130s, and off they had all gone uh, off to Israel. And to this day, those of you that go to Israel, you'll see these these uh, 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 Ethiopian Jews with their fine features, uh, these guys walking around in, in the Israeli Defense Force uniforms mm -hmm. with their weapons on them. Uh, you can see them at an ATM in the plaza there and, and they're just part of the scene over there now so <clears throat> that was essentially that story milk can i uh can i ask a few follow-up questions yeah um, yeah let me let me break it there and then we'll we'll give you the second sort yeah. of what we call the rest of the story um so <laughs> it, it sounds from what you're describing that the the israelis were uh, running a righteous mission there with this using this dive school as cover but they had limited resources to bring these people out. Um, but you had some experience ramping up covert operations quite quickly and quite extensively um, from Afghanistan and, and elsewhere, I believe. And I, I mean, how I was wondering if you could detail a little bit closer, kind of like how that relationship with Mossad came together and you sort of came up with that plan in tandem with them. Well, you know, when I arrived uh, in Khartoum, uh, as as the uh, CIA chief there, one of the first things uh, I did after I got halfway settled in was 
we'll make a special meeting in a, in a special uh, hotel uh, with Mossad. We knew they were there. Their instructions were whatever they were, but uh, the, the, the final page of their instructions always read, and if all else fails, you go to the COS's house, <laughs> uh, the CIA chief's house, and uh, let him take care of the problem. So I met with these guys face to face. We would meet occasionally, uh, clandestinely, to where we worked out this airlift uh, of them using uh, the, the 707s until that got compromised. And I had, a, I had brought in the Sudanese security service as well, who was told by their president to do what these guys wanted them to do, us. And so that's that's sort of the way we got that going. And CIA has resources for this kind of stuff. And you know, if you want ten C one thirties tomorrow morning in a desert strip, we can we can do that. <laughs> and you you mentioned that um, the late President H W Bush was sort of instrumental and greasing the wheels, so to speak, at a political level. I was wondering if you could tell a little bit more about. Um, what HW was like as a director, as a, as a officer, um, as you worked with him during his political career? I mean, what was he like as a man? Well, he was, the first word that comes to mind with him is, is a gentleman. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, he was a Bush. There's no question about that. And, uh, but, but he, by the time uh, I linked up with him, he, he, he was a, foreign policy guy. I mean, he'd been an ambassador to the UN. He then comes to be, uh, he was, he was uh, opened up our liaison office in Beijing. Uh, he then uh, as the CIA director for just a year. But, uh, but he, he always told me that was one of the greatest jobs he'd ever had. Now, when I was overseas, he, you know, he, he is vice president would take these trips around the world, leave Reagan at home and he would come out. And I was in, in uh, Nigeria when he made a visit. What he always did on the visit, you know, he would do the head of state and he would do the embassy and all that. And then he would have a very private meeting uh, with the CIA people because he always wanted to sit with them quietly and, and hear what they had to say and just to kind of let them know that that he, he still felt part of their team. So that, that's the kind of a, of, of, of a man he was, uh, uh, absolutely reliable, smart as a whip, uh, and, and decisive. And so, you know, he could make a decision and, and stick with it. And, uh, and so we, when, when he came out to Sudan, you know, we scripted this thing on a three by five card. And the next thing I know I've got, I'm back in Washington and I took, as I said, the vice president of Sudan uh, back with me and we had dinner at, uh, uh, or, or no, we went and had breakfast uh, with the, the vice president with HW out there at, at the vice president's residence by the Naval Observatory in Washington. Uh, the only thing there is that the, his uh, kitchen staff um, also served bacon and pork sausage uh, to this, <coughs> in this, this Muslim kind of moved it around on his plate <laughs> but uh yeah uh you know he was a terrific human being so uh 
you know, he got this thing going, uh, but then we were still uh, left after the compromise of the normal uh, flow that the Israelis were working with the Sudanese on. Then we had all these people out there and Bush said, we'll, we'll do whatever we have to. And you, uh, you let the cat out of the bag a little bit there, Milton. You know, I think this is probably previously undisclosed that the JSOC guys had some involvement in this rescue operation. What was that like? I mean, obviously the Air Force and the C-130s were involved. What was that like bringing the military and the special ops guys into this project? Well, <clears throat> uh, God, it, it, it was just as smooth as it could be. We, uh, when I went after our, our, I had taken the vice president back to Washington, we made all the contacts. Uh, then I had a few contacts with, uh, with uh, JSOC. And the next thing is we're on, on the C-141, the vice president and I are in a uh, VIP module, you know, that, that, that little bubble they can uh, lash down inside of C-141. And then a whole bunch of these guys in the back and uh, they got it, they, you know, they knew what the problem was. They knew what we all had to do and it, it, it went off like clockwork. We almost lost one of the C-130s, but it finally the pilot brought it down. And these guys, uh, you know, they, they uh, were helping lead these little sticks of uh, yellow clothesline tied balashas. Uh, uh, up onto the aircraft until we had no more. Well, you know, uh, JSOC and desert landing strips, it didn't work out the way anyone wanted it to in 1980. But here we are talking about Sudan, a successful rescue, and very few people, I, I think, understand that it happened. I, I don't think many. I've never written it up in any great detail. It's It's been out there here and there. Right, but, right. But not, not as much detail as, as we're doing now. Right. I mean, I feel like the uh, the Mossad, as as you mentioned, there's been a documentary made about the Mossad side of it. But uh, even I, I was unaware, really, of the level of CIA and U.S. military involvement. But they, that movie didn't do much for us. I mean, they sort of had a C-130 at the end of it. But uh, the Red Sea Diving School, that was a trickle. It right. was a nice try, but it, 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 it didn't it didn't move too many of the people. And that's why we involved, got ourselves involved. And uh, we're able to pull this thing off now. Uh, but, you know, there's not always a happy ending. Uh, uh, that operation, uh, I think someone on the American side uh, gave it all to a uh, uh, L.A. Times reporter. And the thing came out uh, in the L.A. Times and uh, this was while the president, Mary, was actually off in the States trying to get a little more money out of uh, the United States. And a revolution started and a coup. And so he was overthrown. And uh, the town was uh, coming completely unstuck. The military wasn't holding everything together. And the vice president was arrested uh, by a, a bunch of rowdies. And he said, look, you let me go. And I'll tell you something. There are a bunch of Israeli intelligence officers oh, uh, here, and this is where they are. And so he, he gave them up to get himself and a bag of money out of the, out of the country. And so the next thing I see is uh, my doorbell rings 
and I've got uh, three Mossad guys. Uh, and they said, essentially, the balloon is up. I brought them in quickly, put them upstairs in my house, gave them uh, you know, some VHS uh, movies and some guns and said, stay there, be calm. <clears throat> Let me see what we're going to do about this. And uh, then uh, uh, two days later, a, uh, another guy shows up. My wife answers the door and, and, and the guy speak, starts speaking French and says, I'm, you know, essentially, my name is Jean-Claude, I'm French. And she says, no, 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 you're not French. I am, but come in <laughs> uh, and, and, and uh, um, um, go upstairs and turn to the right and go in that room and stay there and be quiet. And then she found me and I said, oh, God, we got four of them now. Uh, yeah, I gave them some Dallas Cowboys baseball hats and uh, then set up for the next month, moving them around town between safe houses, making them look like they were TDYers in from uh, uh, the US doing some sort of a, a, a modification on the embassy or something like that. And we were able to manage this until uh, uh, the airport finally opened up. They had put garbage trucks all along the runway, so no flights in, no flights out for most of the next few weeks after this revolution. So we got, uh, <clears throat> we got uh, uh, a plan together, and uh, you know sometimes the best thing to do is to keep it simple. So what we did was uh, we had four boxes, uh, crates. And four oversized diplomatic pouches, big orange, nice big orange uh, diplomatic pouches. Inside the boxes, we had a solid state oxygen um, uh, generator, very small, uh, and a, a, a plastic tube that would go up uh, through the, the top of the box and through the, the gathering of the diplomatic pouch once we had locked it where they could breathe through the tube or if all else fails, they could, uh, in fact, use the solid state uh, oxygen generator, except the problem was there would be some heat. But uh, so we said, this is it. This is what we're going to do. And uh, at, at the, at the, when the time came, uh, I moved these guys into the embassy. Uh, it was on a weekend. We had permission for what was a, a routine supply flight, uh, which was something in the normal scheme of things uh, in Sudan, a supply flight coming to pick up communications equipment or something from the embassy uh, arriving on that morning. So uh, we were in touch with the aircraft. We put the guys in the box, patted them on the head, uh, sealed up the diplomatic pouches. Uh, they seemed okay. Out the door onto a flatbed uh, with the with these four big diplomatic pouches. Uh, and off we go to the airport. There's still much confusion uh, at the airport. And, and they, they looked at our documents and tried to figure out, uh, you know, what to do. And uh, basically, my orders were drive through the gate and we just uh, sort of pushed the gate open and then drove out just as the C-141 
was making the downwind leg and going to make its final approach. We pull out on the strip as he comes in. Uh, he's still rolling you know, almost you know, about 50 knots and the paratrooper jump door is open. We come alongside him, throwing the boxes on. One, two, three, four, <laughs> slam the door. And uh, uh, the tower, uh, as, as he moves down uh, to, to, for the, to the takeoff point at the airport, the tower is saying, uh, sir, you're not cleared for takeoff. Uh, and we were seeing some, some other activity. We thought, oh, we've got a big problem now. Uh, but this cool pilot, one of the guys that had worked with us quite a bit, he said, Roger, Khartoum Tower, thank you very much. Cleared for takeoff. And the tower <laughs> coming back and say, no, sir, no, sir, you're not cleared for takeoff. He said, thank you very much, Khartoum Tower, cleared for takeoff. And he made the, he made the turn <laughs> at about 90 knots. And then the next thing, uh, he was airborne. And... Uh, uh, we did a little bit of a of a, a wheels up party when he cleared uh, Sudan airspace uh, into Kenya, and the next thing was uh, the, he let down in Kenya, and uh, these guys were home free. Milt, I got a couple questions to follow up on that amazing story. Sounds like uh, reminds me of Argo in so many ways. Um, I just want to take one minute out there to give a shout out to the sponsors of this show. Uh, the first one is uh, Private Internet Internet Access. They are a uh, VPN service. They anonymize your internet access, helpful for all of you spooky characters out there, um, maybe having to access. Uh, information or engage in free information in parts of the world that aren't so cool with that, um, that you may have to work in. So uh, private internet access provides that VPN service. Um, they, uh, and they also don't keep tabs on you or what you're doing at the same time. So if you want to enjoy all the benefits of private internet access now, it's the time to subscribe. Head to piavpn.com slash team house and get an 83% discount. That's seriously 83% off. That's just $2.03 a month. And also you get four months uh, for uh, at, that are completely free. Um, but you got to go to piavpn.com slash team house for a truly private digital life. One last time, piavpn.com slash team house. Um, and the code and everything should be right there on your screen. And then the second sponsor for tonight's show I want to tell you about real quick is Sapgear, sapgear.com. Also for you spooky fellows out there, they make a lot of escape and evasion tools apropos for the, the show we're talking about here today. Um, necklaces and uh, wristbands and things like that that include escape devices, handcuff keys, shims, things like that. Um, they make all sorts of other like door wedges, um, you know, some uh, ballistic uh, devices. Um, I mean, there's really a whole slew of different things on here to maintain your physical and electronic security. So I hope you guys will go check them out at sapgear.com. We're really happy to work with them. And again, what's the promo code D? Team. Team. Yeah. Okay. And so you use the promo code team and you'll get 15% off your order. So again, sapgear.com and team to get 15% off your order. Use that promo code. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chum. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No so, um, thank you for bearing with me, Milt. Um, sure. So, the the boxes with the solid state oxygen system in them and the uh, breathing tube and everything was this something that kind of like the CIA's version of Q dreamed up for extractions like this? Well, it it, it was designed by uh, the Office of Technical Services, and we were able to. You know, we had a you know a good communication with them. They told us, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to build these boxes, uh, and we had technicians and all that uh, at the station, and so we built them. And uh, but but imagine, I mean, you know, the next four guys walking by your your office, uh, you know, explain, oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you in a box, and you're going to. Turn this little thing on here and make oxygen if you need it, but it gets real hot. Be careful. And then here's a, a tube, and you can you know breathe through that. And then we're going to lock it in with a big diplomatic pouch, and we're going to try to throw you on an airplane and get you the hell out of Sudan. Uh, is that okay with you? Uh, okay. Well, maybe not the next four guys, uh, but these these Mossad guys. Uh, you know, we had had long discussions and, and, and the option was for them to try to make it to the Red Sea mm-hmm. uh, port of Sudan uh, by Port Sudan and get somehow picked up off the beach there by, by the Israelis or let me get them out of there uh, this way. And they weighed the options and they took their vote. And they said, we'll go with you. And I you know, pat them on the head close up the uh, diplomatic pouches and then the rest of the story, you know, there you are. Yeah. And, and you, you, the, said, you, you know, that evening they were out at this wonderful barbecue place out on the outside of uh, Nairobi where you know, eating grilled zebra. <laughs> and you, uh, you mentioned that you like basically broke onto the airfield. Well, it was, uh, they didn't know what to do. The airfield had been closed and it had just opening, starting to open up, but, the truck with the boxes, the pouches, pulled up to this kind of flimsy gate uh, on, on on the far side of the airfield, which we used to do to go and meet our own aircraft. The guy at the gate didn't seem to know what, and we showed him some some uh, old ID cards of this and that, and then finally just sort of kept easing up, pushed through the gate, sort of opened for us, and he stood there looking at us like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Okay, what the hell do I know? And uh, and then out, and it was, you know, in Cartoon Tower trying to tell this guy, no, sir, you are not clear for takeoff. And then that cool Air Force pilot saying, that's a Roger Cartoon Tower. Thank you very much. And what did uh, what did you hear from the uh, from from Mossad or the Israeli government after this whole incident? I mean, presumably they were pleased that you know they you got their guys out in one piece. Oh Lord, uh, yeah, you know they take that stuff seriously. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I, she took care of these guys for a month. Uh, uh, we were invited to go through Israel on the way out of Sudan in, in eighty five, and God. Uh, it was almost embarrassing because they take that's you know they take that very seriously 
if somebody has saved the lives, uh, mm -hmm. which they believed was probably the case, uh, of uh, some of their people. And so we were uh, treated, and to this day, you know, we go to Israel and it's the same thing. And they've been through, you know, three or four more Mossad directors. But uh, yeah, we're, we're still uh, persona grata. <laughs> so you and your wife got the VIP tour of Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, we really did. Uh, and uh, got all over the country and everything. But uh, yeah, but I mean, it, you know, that's a special relationship, as you well know, between Mossad and CIA. It, and, uh, it is. Sen sensitive one in that part of the world, too, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sensitive, but uh, uh, and but these guys, uh, they play to win. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a special group. Milt, I mean, these are some incredible stories. And really, I'm so glad that you were able to share some of these with us tonight. Well, it, you know, I think these are, uh, that's what you guys do as well. I mean, you know, the whole team house uh, is to get get stories out there. Yeah, things, yeah. Things that, that, that we did. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think um, I, I think the people in that, I mean, even if we can't mention them by name, deserve to be acknowledged for, you know, their hard work and taking these risks on, you know, like I said in the beginning, I, I mean, it's a, it really is a humanitarian mission to, to get some of these people out. Well, but you know, we're talking about uh, the whole the whole thing of these Ethiopian Jews. I mean, you got to look at you know, a CIA station chief is given an uh, operating directive, and back in those days, okay, number one will be the Soviet Union and whatever they're doing in your country. Number two, China, whatever they're doing in your country. Number three, whatever your country's doing in in, in your country. And and uh, then there's a fourth thing, and other tasks as directed. Well, this is sort of an other tasks as directed. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, do you, what do you, so what do you do? But I mean, here's H.W. Bush, who was former CIA director, current vice president, and he says we got to do something about this. This is this is not right. Uh, these people are going to die out there, and and uh, you know they don't even have. He he admitted that they they don't have a constituency in Washington, not, not under any great pressure, because some quarter in Congress is all up about this. No, nobody's talking about it, but we're going to do something. And so you know, and he 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 operated in 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 Sudan like a case officer, you know, like, like he was a CIA guy. <laughs> And I thought, well, you know, that's okay. You didn't do a bad job. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, it was fun got, for him, too. He got the president, the, the, the president of Sudan, to say, okay, do this, but do it right. That's all he said. He said and so he, Bush told me, he said, okay, Milt, do it, but do it right. So, Milt, this is uh, the, the fun portion of the interview where some of your colleagues uh, and, and former agency people, they, they text me during the week when they find out you're going to be on the show. And they're like, oh, you got to ask Milt this or that. Um, they really wanted me to ask you, and I mean, I think this is this could be an interesting conversation about after your retirement. And they said you did some uh, Hollywood consulting and advising, um, specifically working with Robert De Niro. 
Yeah, yeah, I was uh, actually in New Hampshire writing a book on uh, phone rang uh, and I, I answered and uh, he said, is that milk? And I said, yeah. And he said, this is Bob, Bob De Niro. And I said, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> I thought, yeah, okay, okay. And he said, no, 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 no. Uh, Holbrook gave me your number. Dick Holbrook uh, was a good friend of his when he was ambassador at the UN in New York. And I said, holy shit, okay. And he said, uh, can we meet? He was, at that time, he, he wanted to do uh, two or three movies about this world of spies uh, like he'd done on the mafia, the, mm -hmm. all of that stuff, those, those that he had done. And so I went down to New York and we started talking about it. Then he flew up to uh, New Hampshire and we talked about it some more. And then uh, uh, at that time he was doing Meet the Parents. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, Jay Roach, a young director, was uh, directing that movie. And uh, uh, he called me and he said, this, we're missing something. And, uh, and he said, what are we missing here in the script? We need to do something. And I said, you know what? Why don't we give, you, you probably remember the movie, the De Niro is this ex-CIA guy. And I said, let's give him a secret room. And, and he said, a secret room, yeah. And what, what's in it? I said, well, you know, his stuff, but maybe let's, Let's put a polygraph in there too, just for the hell of it. And so one of then that led, we did the secret room, and then we did De Niro polygraphing Ben Stiller. Right. That is the only polygraph that has ever been done in a movie that was really proper. I don't know if you've been polygraphed. No. But okay. Most of the polygraphs you see are just nonsense. They're just, it's not right. But he did it just exactly right. And uh, the rest was sort of history. And then, so we did meet the parents and then uh, <clears throat> a little bit on, uh, later on, meet the Fockers. Then I used to travel. Bob and I then went off to Moscow. Uh, we went to Pakistan and Afghanistan and then Moscow. And then when we went to Moscow, I I dug up my old KGB guys, and we spent a week hanging out. Wow! With with the KGB guys, and going to casinos with them, and and <laughs> and, 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 and just the regular hangout, uh, so that he got a feel for for for, for what these guys were like, and and, and all of that. And and then uh, then as it turns out, late we, we he still didn't have something until he got uh, this Eric Roth uh, screenplay, The Good Shepherd. Mm -hmm. So then we did The Good Shepherd, which was uh, probably you know not as well appreciated as it ought to have been, but it was really terrific, uh, a terrific screenplay and well done. Matt Damon played the, uh, the sort of the Jim Angleton guy mm -hmm. very very well. Uh, and to this day, you know, uh, 
we meet De Niro here a couple of weeks, maybe a month ago, he came down here. And, but, you know, we're, we're really very, very uh, close and, and probably do another project or two. That's really cool. Uh, then, then he did me, he did, he, he then, uh, Mike Nichols, the director, uh, called Bob and said, who's that guy you got, that CIA guy? And he's, yeah, Bob called me, he said, Nichols wants you, he wants to do Charlie Wilson's War with Tom Hanks. So I said, well, yeah, I'll do that. And so we did Charlie Wilson's War. And we shot that in Dominican Republic and Morocco. And uh, it was a terrific movie. And Hanks was as good a Charlie Wilson as Charlie Wilson was. <laughs> I, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, I have to ask, in uh, Meet the Parents, were any of those conversations that Robert De Niro has with his future son-in-law derived from conversations that you had with future, uh, you know, uh, people who are trying to marry your kids? Uh, kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, he's, yeah, but but he, the combination of, of De Niro playing that role and Ben Stiller, yeah. who is the guy who can be humiliated more than anybody in the world. I mean, he does humiliation better than anybody, but that polygraph scene, if you get a chance, run it up on on the on the the, 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 the streaming device, whatever you've got, and take a look at, at, at Meet the Parents uh, and, and, and look at that polygraph scene. Uh, he really nailed it. Did um uh, did, did down, you... down to the little moves of making notes on the on the, the, the paper that's going through the machine and all that. Great. Did um, um well, actually we went out and, and talked to polygraph operations at CIA too. Oh, cool. De Niro, he does everything uh, the right way. <clears throat> I mean, he doesn't just make it up. So he 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 acted like as good a, a polygraph operator, and I've I've been involved in dozens and dozens of polygraphs of agents. And uh, he, 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 he was as convincing as any polygraph operator I've known. Did, uh, did you work with him on Ronin? Yeah, yeah. We went over to Paris. We did Ronin. That's one of my, and, that's one of my personal favorites. I love that movie. Yeah, it, uh, it, was, it, it was not my favorite as far. It was a great movie, but not my favorite as far as authenticity. But it was, uh, that was the script. And uh, yeah, it's a lot more gunplay than... to, to do with that uh, the, the the script or the reality of it. But yeah, that was that was what we did. Ronan, meet the parents, meet the Fockers, Good Shepherd, and then Charlie Wilson. Uh, those are the movies I was involved mm -hmm. in, and that's kind of fun stuff, you know, for, for a, 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 something to do after you don't have anything else to do. <laughs> well, you you mentioned. Uh, I mean, I I'm, I don't know if you're NDA'd. Um, sworn to secrecy, but uh, are there any future projects that you're working on, either film projects or books? I've got a, I've got a couple of book projects that I'm working on now, but I'm not going to get into those. But uh, yeah, yeah, I've always got one book going, and uh, I've got a, I, I do everything with Random House so far, and uh, we'll see how it all works out. That, that's, you know. You got to do something. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What are you gonna do? Watch daytime TV for God's sakes? No, I think you would get restless. We all would. Uh, 
you know, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk uh, some current events. But um, first, I wanted to show you this uh, this picture, this meme that circulates. Um, D, if you can throw it up on screen real quick. I feel like this is something that like cultural anthropology students will be looking at in 100 years and trying to decipher what in the world is going on here. So the, the people who are uh, supporting the or in support of the Ukrainian resistance against the Russian invasion, make all the they've they've taken this dog as their their mascot and they they took this uh they made this one sort of an homage to you milt and sort of your uh involvement in resistance against the russian occupation of afghanistan i, I don't know if you'd seen this before or what you think of it no i i haven't seen that uh but <clears throat> it's actually i would you know forget the dog but when I was wandering around the hills with the uh, Mujahideen mm -hmm. commanders, I would wear a shalwar kameez, uh, which is what this guy has got on. And then one of those, those uh, vests that you get at, at uh, what is the, the, the story where you get that? I, mean, I remember it was not the Gap, but it was um, Banana Republic. Like a photographer's vest? Well, it, it's like the thing in that it's uh, it, it, whether it's a photographer's vest or whatever. But I, I, <clears throat> I wore one of those on the Afghan thing. So I would always be out with meeting the commanders in in, in Afghanistan or in, in the Pakistan tribal areas dressed like that. But I would uh, on one occasion. A commander gave me a Makarov that, you know, always the Makarov, they pried the cold, dead fingers of a Shvetsnaz colonel, you know the story. Uh, and he gave me a Makarov. And I gave him my Banana Republic vest. Then through the Pakistanis, the word comes to uh, Mr. Milton, uh, you have to get 300 of those vests. I said, what? <laughs> uh, Everybody had to have one. Then all commanders in the Afghan Mujahideen had to have a Banana Republic vest. So I go go back to headquarters, and I can only imagine what's going on in Northern Virginia and Maryland on one weekend. You know, guys, guys calling up from Banana Republic uh, in Tyson's Corner to Banana Republic over in Maryland, said, "Hey, you guys got any of those vests? So what's going on here?" Guy came in and bought all 19 that I had. And they said, you shit, the same guy got, I, I, yeah, yeah, he, uh, we're sold out too. And so the next thing is, you know, by a month later, flying out in a C-141, all the main major commanders, uh, except uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud had a uh, Banana Republic vest. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so, so, but that, that's what uh, that picture you had with the dog yeah that's <laughs> it's it's about right the way i was uh uh usually dulled up uh milt I, I mean shifting gears to kind of current day i mean you have a ton of experience obviously running covert operations against uh russian invasion forces uh, i wanted to ask your thoughts a little bit about the current state of the conflict in ukraine and sort of what your analysis is of where we're at right now and, and what you see maybe happening over the next six to 12 months you know uh unless putin goes completely off the reservation and that's what we all need to worry about mm -hmm. uh it's him pulling you know jerking the lanyard on the big one uh 
he's going to lose it. Uh, I'm probably going to be working on a piece uh, about the Russian army. Uh, we, you know, I don't want to denigrate it. Don't get me wrong. But what there, what we did for about 70 years of a Cold War, we built it up into something that it probably never was. The Russian military. Yes. Uh, we did it. I mean, yes, Stalingrad, all of that. But, but we built it up, not maliciously, but as a means of justifying a $300 billion American defense budget. I mean, you can't go out and say, well, there's these guys that have a crappy little third-rate army, but, but, but we need $300 billion to make ours really good. Well, I'm overdoing it, obviously, but so we did that for all these years. I get to Afghanistan, and first thing I, I, I'm beginning to see is there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something really, really that serious. It's, it's, not the, it's not the red menace that we had built up in our analysis. Well, it's not, it's not the, this, this clockwork superpower mm-hmm. army. Uh, they're, they're doing stuff that we would, we don't, even the most basic gang of recruits on the American side wouldn't do. And so I started, you know, I, 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 I was, as, as a CIA station chief, I was also a writer. And I would, I would write my assessments. And I got, I sort of got a buzzsaw reaction, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't say they were the gang that couldn't shoot straight, but I was saying, hey, you know, have you considered that maybe this, this is a deeply troubled, troubled institution? And, you know, there were people whose lives had been focused on the Red Army at CIA headquarters or elsewhere. And, you know, they came back at me like vipers. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, 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 think, I think that uh, this is an awful, awful thing happening to them. Uh, a, a, a tremendous self-inflicted wound and I think that Ukraine can somehow be the end of our, our good friend, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Putin, uh, because uh, this thing is not going to get better. Uh, and I don't even think that his, unless he's got his own hand on the lanyard, uh, that, that his military is going to let him uh, launch a big one. So stay tuned on this. This thing is really, really serious. Uh, as for if you're Vladimir Putin, because they're not going to win. So you you think the the Russians really are doomed over there? Well, <clears throat> you take a look at the map. Mm-hmm. Everything begins with a map, and how many hundreds of miles of border we've got with uh, Romania, Poland. Uh, uh, our when I think of what, how we were able to supply the resistance to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of miles and then through mountain passes and snow, all of this. And we did it with everything from, um, I bought every mule on the, on the, the world market 
for three years uh, to, to haul supplies in when, you know, this thing is so easily supplied. And, you know, there are Americans in Washington, in our government, whining about the cost of our support to the Ukrainians. We spent about probably $10 trillion. That's with a T. I don't yeah. know how many zeros yeah. that is. During the Cold War. If you do the math, you'll find out this is nickels and dimes to put the final wooden stake into the heart of that thing. And so quit your whining and get on with it. It would be my advice. Uh, and the Ukrainians, you know, I mean, they've just put out their losses. They, what, they said 13,000. It's more than that. But give them, the, let them use whatever numbers they like. Yeah, I think uh, we've given them about $10.5 in military aid thus far. Um, and, you, you, I mean, you told me at one point, I remember you saying that this is the cost of being America. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean when you say that? Well, when, you know, people, most of the people who complain about how, how much things cost also very much want to be the United States of America, which is the un, unquestioned mm -hmm. leader of what we still, for whatever, for lack of a better word, call the free world. But uh, we are the, the, the most you know, powerful entity in, in the history of mankind. Now, that's not bragging, it's just a statement. And, and, but you have to do that if you want to be who we are in every other, in every other venue of, of international affairs. So, so that's the cost of doing business as, as the United States. And it's actually been a pretty good, I think it's been a, a pretty good uh, thing for, for the, the, the system. Uh, you know, we, we've gotten ourselves into, into trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can also say that we probably haven't really won a war since 1945. Uh, Korea was a tie. Uh, Vietnam put it in the loss. Uh, Afghanistan over in the loss. Uh, they can blame politicians or whatever you like to do if whatever makes you feel better but uh th there is also a little truth that nobody in in the last hundred years who started a war i think is one one uh, you know i had a a, a, you know, a a rangers number two son was a ranger officer and you know he, he went into uh, grenada and i don't count the uh, panama i mean guys died there and all that stuff yeah but I'm, I'm not counting them as uh, a, a war with a capital W. Uh, so if you're really talking about wars uh, rather than military actions, uh, people that start those things don't don't end up winning them anymore. And I wonder why that is. I mean, it's a good thought sometimes to, to examine. It, it does seem like a small um, monetary cost on the American side to hollow out the Russian military without losing any American lives. Um, it's it's it is a from a, a purely American national security standpoint, a pretty amazing opportunity. Um, I know that sounds maybe uh, Machiavellian to some people's ears, but um, kind of a, it is what it is. And I, I was wondering what you see as um, 
when, when you, your prediction is that Russia is going to lose this thing between the, a military defeat in Ukraine and all the sanctions that have been dumped on Russia, what do you see a post Ukrainian war Russia looking like? Um, where do you think they're going to stand? Well, I don't see, I don't see a post Ukraine Russia with Putin still in charge. Mm. Uh, and then, 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 you know, uh, with somebody else in charge, uh, the whole equation could change. When I was chief of the Soviet East European Division, I kind of ramped up after the Berlin Wall fell. I established a liaison, intelligence liaison with all the Warsaw Pact countries, you know, Poland, Hungary, all of that crowd, Czechs. Uh, and then and then started working with the Russians. And I brought over a KGB team uh, and took them all over the US and, and, and all of that. And we went all over there. And uh, there's, you know, things can change rather rapidly when, when the policy from the top mm -hmm. is no longer that, that he wants to invade neighboring countries. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Ukraine, I mean, Kiev Rus was the, 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 the beginning of Russia. But, you know, the last 30 years are important, and that's where Ukraine really became its own thing. And so that's the way it's going to be. And uh, uh, it's not the way it was. Sorry. Sorry, Vladimir. Uh, work yeah. it out. You, you mentioned that, you know, the one thing we do have to worry about is him going totally Colonel Kurtz and yanking the lanyard. What do you think could be done from a, an American perspective or even a European perspective to mitigate that? Is there anything we can do, I mean, to try to mitigate the risk of uh, the, the, the conflict escalating to that level? Well, I think uh, all, all that we can really do at this point is for him to understand the cost of that. Right. Uh, <clears throat> don't forget, you know, we've got the 101st Airborne is sitting, a good piece of it is sitting in Romania right now. A lot of people don't know that. Romania, uh, Hungary, Germany. Yeah, we're talking about uh, every last platoon of uh, Russian army troops in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine would probably be taken out by uh, NATO stuff. Right. And... Uh, uh, if he did that, if he if he did a, a, a you know pulled it on a nuclear uh, warhead, uh, and then we you, you see where that goes. Uh, obviously, he he would uh, he, uh, he has to know what our what we would do in 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 that case, and what we're not talking about. We're not talking about getting into an exchange nuclear exchange with him, uh, but we would say your army in Ukraine would cease to exist. Mm -hmm. And that is a promise. And, 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 and does, does he, does Vladimir Vladimirovich, does he think that's okay? Mm -hmm. Maybe not, but his, you know, he's got generals and we're, we're in, probably in touch with someone. And, and, uh, they're the guys that are going to make some serious decisions, not ours, right? But his. 
So this thing uh, can be one of the last big struggles of, of what was a, a, a Cold War contest. Right, it's, it's, like a, it's like an epilogue of the Cold War almost. It kind of an epilogue of the Cold War since uh, Winston Churchill said, you know, the Iron Curtain has descended when he went to Fulton, Missouri in 1947. And, and, and so that, that would be the epilogue. You're right. That's a good characterization. Milt, uh, I could talk your head off all night, and I, I literally would if someone doesn't stop me. Um, did, did you see any questions from uh, the audience that they wanted to ask? And Milt, if you had any any thoughts that you'd like to to uh, address, anything that you want to talk about um, as we start to wrap it up. Oh, I'm good. Uh, we're good to go, and uh, you know, always like like uh, working with you, Jack. Yeah, I I love talking to you too, Milt. And I wasn't exaggerating. I would sit here and talk your ear off until you know one in the morning. But I'm gonna I'm gonna resist doing that, and we can uh, we have you back. I hope on another episode sometime in the future. We'll do it. Okay. D. Uh, what was that? Uh, oh, sure. Hold on. Let me get stand up. Yeah, this is the beauty of doing live uh, internet uh, podcast interviews. Uh, Isaac asks, when Putin became, did you or uh, I guess when he's saying when he became president, did you or any of your IC members say, wait, I think we know that guy might be trouble? Well, you know, I was I was. I was nowhere near the Intel community when he took over. Mm -hmm. uh, I had the, the last guy, uh, you know, uh, actually Yeltsin was my last uh, uh, head of state over there. And, and uh, I last saw him in Germany uh, in 1994, probably 93. Uh, and then I retired, started writing books and making movies and didn't pay much attention when Vladimir took over. I did, uh, did so you even, I did you even, like, what's he up to? Did you even hear of Putin during your time at the agency? Because I mean, the reality is he was just like a low level KGB punk. I mean, he was not the lieutenant colonel in Dresden. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, uh, nobody heard of him. Uh, interesting how he kind of turned his Petersburg links into taking over the whole thing because yeah. uh, there wasn't much going on with him in the KGB. Um, yeah, it's uh, we'll have to have that conversation about Putin and Russian politics another time, I guess. Um, sure. Next, uh, next Friday, we're going to have um, a gentleman who served with Sade. Uh, they do the electronic warfare piece for U.S. Special Ops. So um, we're very excited to have that conversation. And uh, then a few days later, we're going to have a, um, a guy who is with the Army Rangers. It's going to be here in studio, actually, for an interview. So we're excited. We've got some good stuff coming next week. I hope that you guys will go and take a look at Milt's book, The Main Enemy. Really, like I said, I wasn't exaggerating or just sucking up because he's here. Probably my favorite book about espionage. Uh, you will be shocked by the details that are in this book. Um, Milt's uh, also written a novel, uh, Black Tulip, correct? Black Tulip, yeah. Uh, you can find that out there on Amazon as well. Um, 
Milt, if you don't have anything else to promote out there, you know, I'm always happy to try to sell your book. Uh, I think it's great. And um, really appreciate you taking the time to tell us some of these untold stories from uh, from the vaults, so to speak. Great. Good to be with you again, Jack. You take care. You too. Let's talk again soon. And uh, yep. everyone out there, we'll see you again next Friday. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.